Now, today, today, um, we will continue our sermon series for this city. We've been looking at the book of Jeremiah, and specifically this morning, we will look at Jeremiah 18 and 19. So if you'd like to follow along in a Bible or on your Bible app or simply on the screen, whatever your preference is. All right, here's how it starts. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house. And he was not talking about number four, Privet Drive. Um, for our Harry Potter fans, you understood that reference. For those that don't get it, he's not talking about Harry Potter. He's talking about a potter, uh, somebody whose profession is a potter. Uh, so God says, let's go on a field trip. Let's go to the potter's house, and I'm going to give you a little object lesson. And so it continues, so I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, so something had gone awry. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. And so when we're looking at Scripture, one thing that's helpful to do is ask yourself the question, in this story, who is God and who am I? And in this story, uh, God is the potter and you and I are the clay. And as you think about Scripture, like in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we are actually told that we were created in the image of God, the imago Dei, that you and I, men and women, were created in the image of God, which is really cool. And then you fast forward into the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, for we are God's workmanship, or his masterpiece, or his work of art, or his poema, which means his poem, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us. So God has created us, and he's created us, quite honestly, as a, as a work of art. He is our sculptor, and we are the clay. And that's pretty cool to think about. So he's the creator, and we are the created. Well, as I got to thinking about these passages, I wondered to myself, what would a potter think about these passages if somebody was in that profession? And so I reached out to a friend of mine, Paul Ide, and Paul Ide has been doing pottery for about 28 years. So I give him a call and I said, can we get together? Actually, here's a picture of Paul. Let's show him. He's at a potter's wheel. Just to give you an idea of what a potter's wheel would look like, generally there's a piece of clay in the center. In this one, it's actually got a kickstart, so you kick that thing, and the weight of that lower stone gets it spinning, the centrifugal sport, uh, force, and, and it keeps it moving. And so... Um, that's Paul. He and I, a couple weeks ago, sat down at Starbucks right across the interstate here to have coffee, and I started to ask him, what's it like to be a potter? What's, you know, what do I need to know? And Paul talked about the precision that was involved, how it was so important to start with the clay in the exact center of the wheel, or it would spin out of whack and create something uh, that was unuseful. He told me that the process of making a pot on a potter's wheel didn't actually take all that long, but that the work on the wheel was just the beginning of the process. So we talked about this for about a half hour or an hour, and at the end of our conversation, he says, well, would you like to try making pottery? And I said, sure. And so uh, the next week, uh, we had an appointment, and I met him at the Plains, uh, at the uh, 
Plains Art Museum in downtown Fargo where he works. And they actually have a full-blown pottery studio there with multiple wheels, kilns, and all the goods to make pottery. And so here's a picture of Paul molding clay that day. And it's funny, those are blocks. He just starts to roll them out. And he's doing it so quick and effortlessly. And I had to remind myself that this guy has been doing this for almost three decades, right? So he's really good at it. So after showing me what to do, he sits me down at the wheel. And I got to be honest, I was a little bit nervous uh, before I sat down. I feel like anytime you try something new that's a little out of your comfort zone, some nervousness arrives. Well, fortunately, uh, there was a a board on display there. And along with Paul's coaching, uh, they have this board that tells you exactly what to do. So I'm sitting down at the potter's wheel. It says, foot off the pedal. The one I had has an accelerator on it. And once you got to the speed you wanted it to go, you take your foot off and the thing would keep spinning. And then you set the clay in the middle. And then you put your hands at 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock. And you start to apply force trying to center that piece of clay in the middle there. And you're actually, your object, your object is to try to make something that looks like a tuna can. And then after you've done that, you make a dent in the top, and then you drill a hole with your thumbs. Now, uh, I don't know if he didn't tell me on my first try or second try through, but I made that hole too deep, which uh, flattened out the bottom, which caused one of the things to go kaput, and we had to throw it away. But you drill a hole in the bottom, then you start to open up the pot. You start to kind of make that center area and use a sponge to get the mud out and the water out, and then you set or fix the bottom. Uh, And then you do the pulls. The pulls is where they start to get the shape to the pot. Um, They pull it out and they use pressure on the outside. You actually have, I forget how it is, two fingers in, two fingers out. And that pressure starts to create the walls and the shape of that pot. And then after that, you actually cut the thing off with with a wire cable. And I love at the bottom, it says, have fun. That's the most important thing is have fun while you're doing this. And so it was a good time. It was really quite a place. And they love teaching people to make pottery. And they even offer a one-night class called Clay for Couples. So if that's of interest to you, go look them up online. But as the passage says in verse 4, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, and it's as it seemed good to the potter to do. And notice the word spoiled. He doesn't say it was a total rejection, I'm going to throw it away. He says there was a mistake made, and I'm going to remold it and fix it into something that seemed good to the potter. Well, I asked Paul, what happens when a potter messes up, when the vessel he is making is spoiled? And Paul told me it's frustrating. He said, you need to pound the clay back down. You need, to, you need to knead all of the air bubbles out of it and get it back into a solid form. He said, it takes a while longer. It costs you more time, and it requires greater concentration and effort. And what I thought was so important about this illustration is that the clay was moldable. And as Christians, we might call this a soft heart, right? To have a soft heart that is pliable and moldable by our God. And even though the clay got messed up, much like the potter, God is able to remold it until it is something that seemed good to him. Well, unlike the potter in this story, though, God doesn't mess up, right? But sometimes we mess up his creation. Maybe we sin all over ourselves or we make bad decisions. And what God made... His imago Dei, his work of art gets marked up, marred up, if you will. 
But God is able to make beauty from ashes. He's able to fix up our mess-ups, to restore, to renew, to transform. We just have to be moldable, to invite Him to work in our hearts and our minds and to set our minds on things above to transform the way we think and consequently the way we act. But at some level, uh, reality is we are all spoiled vessels. How are you a broken vessel? You know, perhaps it's an anger issue or an eating issue. Uh, maybe it's a harmful relationship that you've been in for a long time. Maybe it's a spending problem or a propensity to gossip. Or, or maybe it's bitterness you just can't seem to let go of. Or perhaps it's, it's an idol. And that idol could, could be your profession or your ride or your athletic ability or, or, or your... Or, or perhaps it's the next high, or, or maybe it's your looks, or maybe it's her looks. How might you be broken? Well, verse 5, be moldable clay. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. Uh, this past week, our life group talked about this passage and about the potter and the clay. And one person, when they were reflecting on making pottery, they said it's messy, which is true, right? It's wet and there's clay and it gets all over your hands and your arms and your body. Much like our journey with Jesus and life, uh, things can be messy. I thought that was so true. And somebody else pointed out the fact that um, in order to mold the clay, pressure has to be put on us. And sometimes God puts pressure on us to change our minds or our hearts to think through things differently. Sometimes the world puts pressure on us, right? And then um, somebody else pointed out that uh, we, or the Israelites, which we'll see in this story, frequently will uh, put God on the back burner. He's not at the front of their thoughts. He's not kept in the center of the wheel or the center of our attention. So God says to the Israelites, can I not rework you into another vessel? If we stay moldable, if we trust and follow and allow him to transform us, he can make all things right. But you've got to be willing, willing to bend and to follow but in this case, in this case, the people of Israel must soon repent or they will be hardened in the wrong way. So to repent or not to repent. Uh, verse 7, God continues, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I'll relent of the disaster that I intended it to do. You know, we saw God do this actually in the book of Jonah with the Assyrians. These evil people repented and he changed his mind and he did not destroy them. But God says, you know, I may condemn you when you cheat on your test or your taxes or your spouse. Or if you treat others poorly, the elderly, a child, the poor, the person of a different color or the wrong political party. But God says, I will Relent. He says, my mercies are new each day for those who repent and turn from their evil ways. He says, forgiveness is available to all of us and we can turn our lives around. 
But conversely, in verse 9, he says this, And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, so I will help to grow it and bless it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. You know, in the same way, when someone is good, when they're obeying God's laws and His ways, and God intends to bless them, to build them up, Uh, But then they turn and they rebel of his ways and they hurt him or worse, his people. He says, I'll remove my blessing. But our God, he gives us a choice to repent or not to repent. And then in verse 11, he says this, Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, listen up. I am shaping a disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So Israel, he says, you've been rejecting me, worshiping other gods, smiting my name, hurting my people. And if you don't return to me, dark days are ahead. But here's how the people of Israel respond. Verse 12, they say this. That is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. In essence, these guys say thanks but no thanks. Not thy will be done but my will be done. If you've been with us throughout this sermon series, this seems to be a repeated theme of these Israelites. Uh, For my cave time... Uh, most mornings, I, I use uh, the New Living Translations, the Bible, study Bible I have that I'll read out of each morning. And I like how the NLT translates this verse. It says, but the people replied, don't waste your breath. We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. Reality is you and I don't say that out loud very often. But we do it frequently, right? We say, God, that's just too hard. I can't do that. Or maybe that rule's really good for them. They should forgive their enemy, but not me, because that's just too much to do. You know, and we find ourselves uh, through our actions just disobeying what God has asked us and instructed to do, even though it would be for our own good and His good and the good of our relationships. We say that I know what God says or my godly friend says to do this, but I'm going to live the way I want. I'm just going to keep chasing my own evil desires. Well, and then this next verse, verse 15, it's as if God's saying, don't forget who he is and what he has done. And it says this, but my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods, They made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and to walk into the side roads, not the highway. You see, the Israelites have forgotten how incredible their God is, and now they find themselves thinking and begging and worshiping some gods besides the one that delivered them from Egypt. I mean, when you think about all that God had done for them at this point, he had sent 10 plagues to rescue them from Egypt. He had parted the Red Sea. He had provided miracle after miracle in the wilderness with uh, quail from heaven, manna from heaven, water. He protected them for 40 years and then he leads them into the promised land and he helps them defeat their enemies and blesses them in so many ways, yet they have forgotten all of this stuff. Why do you think they've forgotten their God? 
Why do you think they've lost sight of this? Think about one of the biggest events in your life. Uh, For you, maybe it was your wedding day. Or maybe it was the birth of your first child. Or maybe it was that time your team won the championship. Or maybe it was when you got accepted into your dream school. Or maybe it was the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Think about how happy you were. Think about how elated you were of the overwhelming emotions that were involved with that moment. But with each passing day, each passing month, each passing year, the emotions of that moment start to feel more and more distant, and we forget about what a big deal it was. Well, the same thing happens to you and I in our relationship with God. We tend to forget what He has done for us, what He has saved us from, how He has provided for us for years and years, how He has made sense of things that made no sense to us. And I think this is one of the reasons our cave time is so crucial, our time in God's Word, our time in worship or in prayer, our time journaling about the activity of God, because it helps us remember how great our God is. It helps us to reflect on His promises and His miracles and His goodness and His ways and His provision. Um, one, thing, one thing my wife does almost every morning in her quiet time, she's got such a great quiet time, she gets up before work and she sits with the Bible for a while, but every morning she will send our family a text. It's to me and my daughter and my two boys. And just this past week, uh, she sent a text that, that said this. It was Psalm 59, 16 and 17, and it reads this. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I will sing praises to you. God, you, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. And in her text, she says this to my boys. She says, I know Kenny and Reese are not really singing praises kind of guys. Anybody want to give an amen to that? Not to them, but I mean, you're in the same boat. You're not a sing praises of God type of person. That's okay. That's okay. But what she says is it's so important. Or she said, I want to challenge all of us to at least take some time today to praise God for all the things that are going well in your life right now. And you think about it, if we took time every day to thank God for the things that are going well in our lives, that we would praise Him in that way and keep at the front of our minds how good He is. But but God's people, the Israelites, have brought shame to His name and His land and His ways. And in verse 17, God says this, like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face in their day of calamity. God basically says, you know what? For for years and years now, you have turned your back on me. And now I'm going to turn my back on you. Has anybody ever been on the receiving end of the cold shoulder? Somebody won't make eye contact with you? They won't even acknowledge your presence. And I think God is so frustrated with these people that he kind of gets to that point. He says, I'm going to turn my back on you. And I don't think God does it out of a place of bitterness because I don't believe our God gets bitter. But he does it out of a place of justice. He says, for years and years you have turned your back on me. And now I'm going to turn my back on you. I am not going to provide for you any longer. I'm not going to protect you any longer. 
However, instead of listening and responding to God's warning and repenting and returning to Him, in verse 18, here's what they say. Then they said, come let us make plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come let us strike him with the tongue, and let us not pay any attention to any of his words. In essence, they're saying instead of listening to what God says, they said, we're going to shoot the messenger. They don't like the message, so they're going to punish the prophet. And notice, they decide to listen to their priests and their wise counselors who will affirm what they're doing. They don't want to listen to Jeremiah who's correcting them. And I think how many of us do that in our own lives, right? We look for somebody who will affirm our behavior. We look for someone who will be on our side of the argument instead of sometimes going and finding that person who loves God or going to God's word and saying, God, how do you want me to deal with this situation? What is it you want me to do? So they decide they want to punish the prophet instead. And sometimes God uses people to gently correct us, and sometimes he uses people to rudely rebuke us. And I'm guessing that's how Jeremiah's rebuke felt. But he brings people into our lives to bring light on our sin. And to, and to be honest, in the moment, we don't like it, do we? We might deflect or deny or even worse, attack. But frequently, if you ask yourself, Lord, what do I need to learn from this? You'll find that there's some truth that's helpful, even if it's not delivered well. But the Israelites, they'd forgotten their God and their hearts have become hard and they put walls up and resist the warnings of Jeremiah. And in chapter, or in verse 19, Jeremiah says this, Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Have you ever felt compelled by God to lovingly uh, let someone know that they're making a big mistake in their life and that they're headed down a dangerous path, and instead of listening to you and receiving that, uh, they attacked you. That's how Jeremiah's feeling like right now. Have you ever been so frustrated with someone that you just throw your arms up and want to give up? That's where Jeremiah is at. And in verse 23, we read this, yet you, O Lord, you know all they're plotting to kill me, he says, forgive not their iniquities. He doesn't even want God to forgive them anymore, nor blot out their sins. Don't forgive their sins. Let them pay for them. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. The prophet throws up his hands. He's sick of their abuse, of their stubbornness, their attacks on him. And he says, don't forgive them or wipe away their sins. Let their enemies overthrow them, God. So chapter 18, it starts uh, by Jeremiah, uh, kind of uh, this idea of being moldable clay, uh, this idea that, that if we follow God and if we're receptive to Him and His ways, that we can be transformed into something good, that He will mold us into what He would like us to be. He says that if you do that, I'll forgive you and I'll bless you. Well, let's go back to the potter's wheel for a moment. Forming the vessel is just the first part of the process. Uh, to finish making the pottery, uh, you have to spend some time drying it out. 
and then you bake it halfway, and then you apply a glaze, which is kind of has both color in it but fills the pores and makes it harder. And then you bake it again to maximum temperature so that it's ready to go, and then you let it cool. And then as my friend Paul says, when it's completely done, the way you know it's done is you eat soup out of it. That's the final process. Eat soup out of it. So once the pot's done, you can cook in it, you can eat out of it, you can drink out of it, unless you break it. It'll retain its shape and it'll retain its usefulness or uselessness if it was poorly made. By the way, um, the two pots that I made are on display out at the hub. So if you want to see my pottery inadequacy, go out there and take a look at those after the service this morning. Um, So the next part, though, chapter 19, we jump into hardened hearts and broken vessels. So we move to another object lesson, looking at the finished product of the pottery. And in verses 1 and 2, we read this. Thus says the Lord, he says to Jeremiah, go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. And so the object lesson turns from moldable clay to something that's been baked and is hardened and is not changeable. The vessel that Jeremiah might have uh, got could have looked something like this. This would be a flask. So he probably purchased something like this. And he, he grabs these elders, these wise men, and he grabs this flask. And these guys head down to the dump. Uh, it's probably the local garbage dump. They call this the potsherd gate. It's probably where they threw away the debris of the broken pottery and the shards of pottery. Well, then God tells them in verse 3 to speak these words. You shall say, hear the word of the Lord. O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, listen up, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I thought that language was a little weird, like what does it mean for my ears to tingle? I did a little research and you know, your ears tingling, it's kind of like when you get that moment where you get some devastating news. Uh, Perhaps it's a life-altering diagnosis or the unexpected loss of a loved one, and there's almost a shock that hits your body. And it's as if your ears ring or tingle with the news. That's what's going to happen to these Israelites. They're going to be saying, did I just hear what I think I heard? And he goes on, because the people have forsaken me. The next verse there, Dermot. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire and burnt offerings to Baal which I did not command or decree nor did it come into my mind. God said that I have never even thought of suggesting such atrocities. And then God says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. God is renaming this valley and it's not an upgrade. It's worse than Pluto being downgraded from a planet. 
I mean, when you think about the names of places of desolation are given, Death Valley, Hell's Canyon, Devil's Backbone, Dead Horse Lake, Massacre Meadows, it's going to get so bad they'll call this place the Valley of Slaughter. Verse 7, and in this place... I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I'm going to cancel their plans. And will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies. And by the hand of those who seek their life, I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beast of the earth. It's one thing to die. It's quite another to think of our dead bodies serving as roadkill for coyotes and vultures to gnaw and peck at. It's a pretty gruesome picture that God is painting here. And then verse 8, he goes on, and I will make a whore of the city, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I tried to imagine a city or a place that had once been really cool and now is just a decimated area. And one of the things that came to mind for me, if you've ever been on I-15 between Las Vegas and Los Angeles, about halfway between, uh, 24 miles east, northeast of Barstow, on the north side of the interstate, uh, is this old abandoned water park. And back in the day, it was called Lake Dolores, and it looked something like this. It looked like, it's just, it's in the middle of the desert, but it was gorgeous. I remember seeing uh, television commercials on for it in the 70s and 80s, thinking, I really want to go there. That looks like so much fun. But now, now it's a graffiti-riddled, trash-filled shadow of its old self. And actually, it looks much worse than this. These pictures are probably 10 or 15 years old. Go ahead and show the next picture. I mean, it just looks like something great once happened there. And now it's decimated and just a mess. And he says that's what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. And that things are going to be so dire that bodies will actually be stacked upon bodies. There won't even be a place to bury your dead. And that the people will get so desperate they will resort to cannibalism. Well, in verse 10, God says this. Then you shall take that, that flask. You shall break the flask in the sight of the men. Who go with you and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Have you ever dropped a ceramic bowl on tile and seen the thing just shatter into a hundred pieces, a thousand pieces? Like, it is just never mendable. It's not replaceable. And that's what Jeremiah does. He goes out to this dump where there's all sorts of shards, and he crashes the thing onto the ground. And I imagine the shards of this flask end up getting mixed in with all the other shards of the broken pottery. It's beyond repair, never usable again. And then in verse 15... Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. Are you listening to the words of God this morning or have you stiffened your neck to his words and his ways? 
You see, the Israelite people refused to listen, and the horrible carnage that Jeremiah had predicted happened twice. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem was invaded and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, and things got so bad and people got so hungry, they actually resorted to cannibalism. And then Jerusalem was again destroyed in 70 A.D. under the uh, Roman oppression of Titus. The deal is, this is bad news. This is a stubbornness. It's a refusal to listen to God. But think about it. Think about it. For 40 years, God had Jeremiah warn the people. For 40 years, he gave them every chance to get their lives right, to follow him again, to restore their relationship. Uh, in Psalm 23, 6, uh, David writes, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And the same thing is true for you and I, but we have to receive and respond to that goodness and mercy. You see, our God is, God is the potter, and if you'll allow him to do his work and to transform you, he'll make you into something useful, something beautiful. And I'm not just talking about physical beauty, but inner beauty, to be loved, to be valued, restored, Freed from shame, pure and useful in the eyes of God by the grace and the power of God. We can be remolded even when we mess up. There's a lot going on in these two chapters. And as you read them, here are a couple great discipleship questions to ask yourself. First off, what is God saying? And the second is, what are you going to do about it? You know, as I look back over chapters 18 and 19, uh, there's some themes, right? It started off with saying, be moldable clay, uh, that you and I, uh, when we're in the potter's hand and allowing him to do his work, we can be moldable. And uh, how, are, how can we be moldable? Well, he says to repent or not to repent. Actually, repentance is a way that moldability starts to return in our lives as we turn back to him and ask him for forgiveness for the things that we've done. And I love how the New Testament lets us know in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, we're told, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And in Romans 10, 13, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So as long as you still have breath in your life or breath in your body, God offers you that. He says, come to me and I will forgive everything. And then don't forget who he is and what he's done. Think about what is it you do to help you remember the goodness of God. Uh, one of the passages I love is, is uh, Psalm 52, 12. David writes this, and he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant a willing spirit within me. And for some of us who are Christ followers, like we need to pray that prayer. God, just restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me remember what a big deal that was and help my, restore my zeal and my love in you. And he says, don't shoot the messenger. You know, God is going to bring people in your life that will tell you truth, that will hopefully tell you truth and love, that care about you and want to see you get back on the right path. And we have to humbly say, God, what is it you want me to learn? What is it you want me to do as a result of this information? And sometimes those people might look a little like Jeremiah, a little brutal, right? But God wants us to be receptive and to learn and to grow and be teachable. 
and then avoid hardened hearts and know that God does some of his best work with broken vessels. What is God saying? And what are you going to do about it? I want to invite the worship team up. And in a few moments, we're going to sing a song titled Broken Vessels. And at some level, we are all broken vessels. But know this, that we can be molded, remolded even when we mess up. Uh, The lyrics to this song says, all the pieces broken and scattered in mercy and God's mercy gathered, mended and whole, empty handed but not forsaken. I've been set free. I've been set free. And then he says, you take our failure. You take our weaknesses. You set your treasure in jars of clay. For some reason, he chooses to set his treasure in his Christ followers and those that love him and follow him. So take your heart, Lord, and I'll be your vessel, the world to see your life in me. What is God saying to you, and what are you going to do about it? Will you give God your heart? Will you be his vessel? Let's pray. Uh, Father, there is so much in these two chapters, and so much of it is dark and heavy. But it's just a part of the story, and I love the fact that you invite each and every one of us, regardless of what's on our ledger, regardless of what we've done, regardless of whether or not we're apathetic or just pathetic. God, you invite us back into relationship with you or into relationship with you for the very first time. You want to mold us. You want to change us. Uh, If we've got crusty hearts, God, or maybe there's still some softness inside, but there's a hardness that's developed around the exterior, I pray that you would do whatever you need to to break that down, that we would invite you uh, to pierce our hearts. Whatever darkness is in our hearts, fill them with light, Lord. Help us to know your love and to follow you with every part of us, and help us to know that not a one of us is not beyond redemption Uh, that you redeem things and you take broken vessels and you make beauty out of ashes. May we know that you're our potter and may we allow you to mold us each and every day. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.